You're listening to an audio message from Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. For more information, visit our website at harvestgranger.org. As we come to Genesis 22, we come to another, maybe even the most epic story in the Old Testament. And I know I keep saying that week after week, but we're learning that every epic story in the Bible is telling the story of Jesus. And so every time we open the Bible, we're reading not only a story about Abraham or whatever figure we're studying, we're also reading our story because this is the story of how God and man are reconciled and relate to one another. And then we're also reading the story of the gospel. Guys, help me out with my PowerPoint back there, if you would. And we need to understand that as we dive into this, we're looking for the story of Jesus. Here's the big idea of the message today. God proves his love by paying the price of the promise. God proves his love by paying the price of the promise. I want you to look here at the first verse of Genesis 22. It says, after these things, stop right there, we gotta summarize what that's all about because we haven't read all of the chapters together. Hopefully you've been reading along, but you know that about 10 chapters previous to this, God came to Abraham and said, get up, get moving, get going. You're gonna go to a place that I have promised you. I'll show you what that's all about. I'm going to bless you. That was remarkable in and of itself because God was going to reverse the curse. He was going to bless instead of curse. And that blessing was going to not only bless Abraham, but it was going to bless all the nations of the earth through the great nation, the descendants, the offspring of Abraham. The only problem with that was he had married a wife who was unable to get pregnant. Now, back in the day, they didn't have fertility treatments, and so the fertility treatment was get another wife and sleep with her. And so Abraham, instead of trusting God to provide through Sarah, actually manufactures his own solution, and in fear, he has a son named Ishmael. God says, that's not the one I'm talking about. And so he gives him another son. His name was Isaac. God does a miracle and gives a son to Sarah named Isaac. Remember how Sarah laughed when God said she was going to have a baby when she was 100 years old? And so she named his name Laughter, which is Isaac, the way that we know him. When we met together last time, we saw that Abraham intercedes. He pleads as a priest on behalf of the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, which was facing the just judgment of God. And Abraham is thinking and asking, maybe this is the, one of the nations I'm supposed to be a blessing to. And he asked God if he would treat the wicked many in Sodom as if they were the righteous few, giving us the understanding that God will impute righteousness to wicked people. Which brings us now to this passage. Genesis 22, after these things. Those things, here's what God did next. God tested Abraham. Everybody see the word tested in your Bible? Underline that word. That's an important word. Are you a good test taker? When was the last time you took a test? Uh, did you pass the test? If you're a parent, how many parents in the room right now? 
Do you have often repeated conversations about test taking in your home? That is one of the most often repeated conversations in our home. A couple of years ago, we, you know, we got Scott into our family, and quite honestly, he was in a really bad school before we got him, and they didn't teach him very much, and they certainly didn't help him take tests, and so he had a lot of failing grades on tests. After two years of being in the Griffith household with conversations every day about how to be a good test taker, those grades are getting better. We're passing tests where we once failed tests. Now, God is about to give Abraham a test. There are four questions on the test. And we're going to see those four questions here. But why does a teacher test a student? Believe it or not, your teacher, if he's a good teacher, actually wants you to pass the test. I know that sometimes you have to convince your children that they, they're good teachers. They want you to pass the test. They teach you... And then they test you. Well, God has been a good teacher to Abraham, teaching him about how to trust him, teaching him to believe he's going to fulfill the promise. Now that he's taught him, he needs to teach him. So after these things, God tested Abraham and he said to him, Abraham. Now, do you see in your Bible, do you have an exclamation point after the word Abraham? Does everybody have that? So can I read that the way it's supposed to be read? Abraham! That's what that means. It's trying to get his attention, right? Yeah, we, we have to have a conversation. We're about to have a test. So he says, Abraham says, here I am. In other words, I'm available, I'm listening, and I am ready for the test. Now, as we walk through this passage, understand this is not just a story about Abraham. This is a story about you. You can insert your name in there with the exclamation point after it, understanding God is trying to get your attention through this story this morning. The question is not, will God call your name? He will. The question will be, will you answer the way Abraham answered? Here I am. I am listening. I have showed up for the test. What are you trying to teach me? I want to pass the test. Are you ready for that? Everybody, if you're ready, say, here I am. Amen. All right, say it to God, not to me. All right, that was less than enthusiastic, but we'll go on. Verse 2, he starts the test. By the way, here's the first test question. The first test question is, do you love anything more than God? God is going to ask Abraham that question. This is an idolatry test to see whether or not Abraham loves God most. So here we are in verse 2. And God says, take your son, your only son, Isaac. By the way, how many sons did Abraham have? Two. God says, take your son, your only son. You see, Abraham had a son out of fear as he manufactured one through someone who was not his wife. And he had a son through faith, the promised son, Isaac. And so God says, just to be clear, we're talking about the promised son here. Your only son, the fulfillment of the promise. So he says, take your son, your only son, whom you love. 
And so God acknowledges this loving, affectionate adoration that Father Abraham had for his son Isaac. If you're a father, you get this. There is a love that a father has for a son that should never be severed by abuse or absence or neglect. Abraham had that relationship with his son, and God acknowledges it. He's passing the father test. But then he says, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. God tells him to go to a very specific geographical location on the planet. You see the word Moriah there? Underline Moriah. You're going to find out there is significance to where God sent him. This was about a three-day journey. He again was going to have to leave where he was and go 45 miles in one direction to get to the place where God told him to take his son. And what's he going to do with him there? Offer him there as a burnt sacrifice, a burnt offering on one of the mountains, not any mountain, one mountain. Offer him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, would you just let that verse sink into your brain? Would you absorb for the next several seconds the ridiculous command God gave Abraham? What we are reading in verse 2 seems absolutely inconsistent with the character of God. In verse 2, the command of God seems to be inconsistent with the promise of God. The name Abraham means father of a multitude. God has promised there's going to be this long line of generations that are going to come through Abraham's son. That was the promise made. In verse 2, God kills the promise. God makes the promise in Genesis 12. He kills the promise in chapter 22. What is Abraham supposed to make of this? What are we supposed to make of this? Do you know that many people stumble over this story so much they can't even conceive of serving a God that would ask Abraham to kill his son? Not just kill him. He's to be a burnt offering. He's to burn the body of his son. He's to slaughter him. Not only does God want him dead, he wants Father Abraham to watch him die. He wants him dead at the hand of Father Abraham. Are you feeling the pain of this? Can you imagine doing this to your son? Now listen, God is testing Abraham. And the way that God is testing Abraham, he is not going to call to test you or me. 
As a matter of fact, we know how this story ends. God never intended Abraham to sacrifice his son. So why is the story here? What is this test? Could it be that God wants us to feel the pain that a father would feel of giving his son, his only son, that he loves as a sacrifice. I believe this story exists so early in the Bible because God wants us to know something, not just about Father Abraham, but he wants us to know something about Father God. We understand in this story, it's not just about Father Abraham sacrificing his only son whom he loves. This is a story about Father God who sacrificed his only son whom he loves, Jesus. And God wants us to feel the pain that Father God felt in doing that. And so God tests Abraham. Now we said that God doesn't test us the way that he tested Abraham, but you can mark it down. God will test you. And in a sense, this was a test to see if Abraham loved God more than he loved Abraham, more than he loved Isaac. And God may test you about something that you love. Can I ask you, what do you love? Well, what are your top five loves? Do you love them more than God? Do you know that the reason some of us are not more in love with God is because you refuse to relinquish some other love? Maybe it's yourself. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's your career. Maybe it's your reputation. And it could be there's a father in here that loves a son more than he loves God. That's sin. So much so that Jesus said this in Matthew 10, 37, when he was calling his disciples. He said, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. This is the idolatry test. We can't be followers of Christ if there's anything we love more than God. And we are tested every day on whether or not that is true. Should you love your son? It's not a trick question. Should you love your son? Yes. Should you love your wife? Do we talk about how you should do these two things? Yes. Should you love them more than God? No. And a son or a wife or another person or a career or yourself is a horrible way to find your identity, significance and worth. That you love them so much that you love them as an idol of your heart. Mark it down. Your heart is going to love something. And God knows we can't fully follow him if we love anything more than God. But it's more than just this. God wants all of those loves on the altar. God wants to know who comes first. 
And so who comes first in your relationship? Is it any other relationship other than your relationship with God? But again, God wants us to feel something about a father. Let's see if he passes the test. Look at verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning. This is the 1130 service. You have no concept of even what that means. So Abraham rose early in the morning. He saddled his donkey. He took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Did Abraham pass or fail the test? Pass. Now, we don't know how much time passed. We're not given a whole lot of commentary on what he was feeling. But if you're a father, you're probably thinking there was probably a lot of conflicted emotions going on, even as he obeyed God. Here's the second question on the test that God gave Abraham. And it's a question for us as well. Will you worship God even when you don't know what he is doing? Look at verse 4. On the third day, would you please underline third day in verse four? That's going to have some significance for us. And on the third day, it was a three day journey to this place, Mount Moriah. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and he saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. The word worship here is used for the very first time in the Bible, and I think it's strikingly significant. God didn't call him to the place to worship. God called him to the place to kill his son. And yet somehow in Abraham's mind, he translated what he was about to do as an act of worship. Abraham is about to surrender the thing that he values most. And he said that is the place of worship. Do you understand what worship is? Worship is not just coming and singing your face off and, you know, reading scripture. And it, it's not just this gathered collection and trying to sing some songs. Worship is something that you bring to God. Worship involves offering yourself and your will and your loves to God. And worship is costly. Can I ask you a question? Did you just walk through 30 minutes of collective worship and not worship because all you did was recite some lyrics in a song, raise a hand? The question is, did that worship cost you anything? Did you lay your will before the Father? Did you surrender your life before Him as the one who is worthy of everything you have? That's what Abraham did. He understood, I am giving to God something that cost me everything. And he did it not knowing everything that was involved and not knowing everything that God was doing. 
Can you worship even when you don't know what God is up to? Do you, do you sometimes ask God for a little more information? Um, God, if you could just unfold this story just a little bit more, it would help me take my next step. God, I, I could give a lot more money if you would just kind of show me how you're going to provide it back. Um, God, I would go to a dangerous place if you would just give me body armor and some uh, collective guards there to take care. No, God, God, most often God does not show you everything he's doing before he requires you to worship. Did you get a bad health report or you're wondering where your next job's going to come from? There's some, probably some people in here wondering, God, if you could just work out this relationship with my spouse, then God, I would, it'd be so much easier. Yeah, God's not into easy worship. He's into costly worship. And that is why he says in, in, uh, in Hebrews chapter 11, that, actually, I want to show you this other verse. It's Romans chapter 12. Our whole relationship to God is one of offering ourselves as a sacrifice. Romans chapter 12 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Our whole life is an act of worship. And it is in every moment, every day, putting everything on the altar and saying, God, you are worth more. The word worship comes from the word worth. I'm giving you something that is worth everything. God wants it all, and he wants it all on the altar. Now, there's an interesting thing going on here, too. Um, look here at the last part of verse 5. Abraham and Isaac go to the place of worship. But before he goes, he turns to his two servants and says, Guys, we're coming back. Not I'm coming back. We're coming back. So what is going on here? Abraham somehow believes Isaac is going to make it out of this alive. And he probably doesn't know how. He doesn't know how God's going to get this done. All he knows is God made a promise. And it appears God has killed the promise. But I believe God is able to resurrect this promise and we are coming back. He must have believed that God, even if he wanted him to sacrifice his son, that God was able to raise him from the dead. The reason we know that is because of passage of Scripture that gives a commentary on this way over in the book of Hebrews, where it says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he really did receive him back, which we're going to find out later. God actually does it. So God made the promise. God killed the promise. And God is able to resurrect the promise. And so the third question on the test is this. Do you believe that God will provide? 
Abraham has to pass this test. That question's found in verse 7, but we need to read verse 6 before we get there. Look at verse 6. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac's on, laid it on Isaac, his son. Now, just stop right here. We don't know how, how old Isaac is. And sometimes when we think about this story, we think, you know, he's probably like 10, um, maybe. But some commentator, commentators believe he could be as old as 37 years old at this point. Um, he could have been 33. But what we know here in this text is he was old enough to carry some wood on his back. I don't know about you. I got an 11 year old. He didn't carry a whole lot of wood. Um, you know, when he gets older, he's going to be carrying some wood. Um, he's probably an adult at this point. And he is, he is strapping on his back the wood that will become the tool of his own execution. Look at verse 7. And Isaac, I still need to read verse 6. Sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. He laid it on Isaac's back and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. Verse 7. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. Is there an exclamation point there? So can I read it the way it was probably said? Father! And he said, here I am, my son. And he said, behold, uh, fire, check, wood, check. Where's the lamb? Where's the lamb for the burnt offering? A legitimate question. Legitimate question, yes or no. I want to suggest to you the question, where is the lamb? is the most epic question in the Bible. And it's a test for Abraham to see whether or not he believes God will provide. Let's find the answer to the question. Next verse, verse 8. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So they both went together. Question, where's the lamb? Answer, God will provide. Pass or fail? Pass. Do you believe that God will provide? And remember, God is testing us. Can I ask you the question, do you believe that God will provide? I don't know what you're facing. I don't know what God's asking. Is there something you are refusing to lay on the altar because you think, I can't live without this? Do you believe God will provide? Do you believe that God will provide something better if He asks you to surrender something? Yes or no? Some of us are holding on to things that we refuse to surrender to God because we don't believe God can provide anything better than what He's asking you to sacrifice. Pass or fail? Do you believe God will provide I said this question is the most important question in the Bible. Where is the lamb? Well, why do we even have sacrifice in this story? What is the significance about death and a son dying? And if not a son, a, a lamb? What, what is all this? Well, we understand anytime you read in Scripture, 
the story of death, it's the story of sin. We're only 22 chapters into the Bible, but we've already found out that when someone sins, death is the price. The price of death is sin. Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. God said, in the day that you sin, you will surely die. And from that point, there's been a death spiral happening here in the book of Genesis. The price of sin is death. And God requires the price to be paid by death. And so Abraham and Isaac knew this concept and they knew something's got to die. And Abraham's wondering, why God does my son have to die in order for the price of sin to be paid? And so the Isaac asked the question, where's the lamb? Did you know that you can't even become a Christian until you ask that question? You're like, where's the lamb? Listen, not literally those three words, but what was Isaac asking? Where is the, where is the sacrifice for sin? Who's going to pay the price for sin? Where is the lamb? Most people never even have a concept that there needs to be a sacrifice because they don't think their sin is that bad. They don't think that sin deserves death. Therefore, they never ask the question, who's going to pay the price for my sin? Where's the lamb? They don't ask the question. Last weekend, we were not with you. Andrea and I were in Phoenix, Arizona. We were leading a uh, weekend to remember marriage conference out there with 700 married couples. It was a really great conference. God did a cool work. At the end of those three days, we uh, needed to get to the airport. So I called an Uber driver and Uber driver shows up and, and we get in uh, the car for about the 10 minute uh, ride to the airport. And our Uber driver was Uber sanguine and Uber talkative. And uh, he just really talked and talked and talked about the only thing he said during the whole trip was, what do you do? Like, do you really want to know? <laughs> and so I told him, I'm a pastor of a church. We're out here teaching biblical uh, principles for marriages. And uh, that prompted him to talk even more. And so he told me that he was of the Baha'i faith. Are you familiar with the Baha'i faith? And he wanted to explain what that meant. He said, now for me as a Baha'i, what I've done is I've studied all the major religions. And, uh, and uh, we've, they just kind of all melt into our Baha'i faith. And we just kind of take the best parts about them all and kind of create our own thing there. And, and he's just like, it's just really great. It's just wonderful world peace and everything. And, and uh, he said, what, what I've discovered is that all of the major religions have one principle that's common to all of them. He said, it's the golden rule. And the golden rule, of course, is um, treat others as you would want them to treat you. And so he said, that's the principle that's found in all of these common, uh, in all of these religions. And so that's what I try to do. And I'm, I just treat others as I want to be treated. And so that is the way that I relate to God. And he was so happy and so relaxed. And, and I just, about that time we got to the airport and didn't really have a chance. But I, here's what I wanted to say. Um, where's the lamb in that? What, what do you mean where's the lamb? You see, here's the problem. Who pays the price 
when you don't treat others the way you want to be treated. Because during this whole 10 minute trip, you have not been treating me the way I want to be treated. You've been talking the whole time, driving me crazy, and I want you to be quiet so I can talk. So now we have sin in the Uber cab. The question is, who pays the price? And of all of the major world religions, there's only one that provides the lamb. Did you know that this story is found in the Quran? Father Abraham is the father to three great faith systems, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. But why is it that we as Christians read this thing through a whole different lens? Do you know the way that Islam reads this passage? Absolute submission to God. No matter how crazy God asks you to do things, you just got to do it and you got to do it perfectly. The problem is nobody ever has. So who pays the price? Where is the lamb? They don't seem to understand this whole story is a prequel. You know what a prequel is? Star Wars fans know what a prequel is, right? <laughs> Woke up that morning and you realized that you thought episode one was episode one. You found out episode one's episode four and episode one now is way back over here and that gives a whole nother understanding to episodes one through three. Won't even mention seven. So anyway, all of this stuff is a prequel to help us understanding a preview of coming attractions 2,000 years later. We understand where the lamb is and we know his name. Do you believe that God has provided something you could never provide for yourself? Where is the lamb? And Abraham didn't know exactly, but God did. And that's why he said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering. Here's the final question. Do you see the significance of the substitute? Look at verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Now again, we don't know how old Abraham or how old Abraham and Isaac are at this point. But even if Abraham, even if Isaac is 12, I think he could have taken Abraham. All right? He's 112. So what we see in this verse is not only does Abraham pass the test, Isaac passes the tests. He offers himself willingly to be bound by his father. He lays himself down on the wood as an offering. He must have known I don't know how I'm getting out of this alive, but I'm trusting my father who believes God will provide the lamb. Then verse 10, then Abraham reached out his hand and he took the knife to slaughter his son. Verse 11, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, Abraham, 
Abraham. Yes, Lord, I've been waiting. Um, you know, God is never in a hurry and he is never late. Um, he's always right on time. And so God answers and Abraham says, here I am. I, I, I've been waiting for you to provide a solution to this so that my son gets out of this alive. So verse 12, he said, do not lay your hand on that boy and do not do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Verse 13, Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and looked and he took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. Do you understand the significance of what is happening here? This is an epic story that's telling the story of Jesus. Like Isaac, Jesus is God's only son whom Father God loves. And yet he offered him up. Do you know where this is happening? Do you understand the, the epic significance of this spot on earth? It was Moriah. Mount Moriah. We're told in 2 Chronicles chapter 7 that one day Solomon built a temple to the Lord on Mount Moriah. The name Moriah was later changed to the name Jerusalem. In that temple, there were thousands of lambs slaughtered through the centuries, again, as a prequel to what one day would happen 2,000 years later, Jesus would one day enter Jerusalem. He would be arrested. He would be flogged. They would put a crown of thorns upon his head. They would give him a cross of wood to carry to the place of sacrifice. He would be bound. They would lay him on the wood. And there in that moment, Father God would slaughter his son, his only son, the son that he loved to pay the price of the promise. Do you see the significance of this substitute? Look at verse 13. Abraham lifted up his eyes. Now, can you imagine Abraham there? He is so focused on Isaac and offering up Isaac. He's got the fire. He's got the wood. He's got the knife. He's got his eyes on his son. In that moment, when he heard God call his name, he lifts his eyes off of what he is sacrificing onto what God has provided. And the next word in the verse is behold. Now, we've learned that's a significant word. Every time you see the word behold, it's like you are not going to believe what is about to happen. But you need to believe what's about to happen. See, it says behold. One day over in the New Testament, in John chapter 1, John the Baptist was with two of his disciples, it tells us. How many servants did Abraham have? 
too. John was with two of his disciples, and Jesus walked by, and he nudged them and said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And so Abraham lifted up his eyes, and behold, the next thing it says is behind him, not in front of him. Behind him, there was a ram caught in a thicket. So Abraham physically has to turn from the sacrifice he is making toward the sacrifice that God wants. He physically has to turn his back. It's a picture of repentance. You have to turn your back on what you love and move toward what God loves. Then it says he went to him. He physically had to travel. And he took the ram. You have to embrace it for yourself. And you have to bring to God, to the altar, what God has provided for himself to pay the price for sin. The price of the promise is paid not by sacrificing your son, Abraham. It's paid by sacrificing my son, Jesus. Does that move you? Can I ask you this? Have you tried to offer to God sacrifices of good works, religion, church going. My mother's a Christian. I live in America. I've never killed anyone. I'm better than most. That's not the sacrifice God wants. You have to lift up your eyes. You have to behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world is found in Jesus Christ. You have to physically turn your back and move toward Him. Take Him and offer Him to God, the one, the one alone who can pay the price of the promise. It's the only way we can be made right with God. Look down at verse 17. He says, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that's on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. One day Jesus looked at his disciples and said, on this rock, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. If Abraham could have been there on the day that Jesus died with his back strapped to that wood on the cross, do you know what Abraham would have said? He would have said to God, Now I know. Now I know that you love me. In verse 12, God says to Abraham, Now I know that you love me. You fear me. You worship me because you did not withhold your son. If, God could have, if Abraham could have been there on Mount Calvary, Abraham would have said to God, I kn now I know. Now I know you love me because you did not withhold your son from me. Listen, you never have to question whether or not God loves you again. You never have to question whether or not you've done enough or if you've sinned too much because God has not withheld His Son from us. Now I know that you love me. Now I know I can be in relationship with you. I can have a new start, a fresh beginning, because all my sin 
has been paid for. The promise has been made. The price of the promise has been paid. Not by my offering, but by God's offering. Can I ask you to bow your heads? Don't check out on me. We have to respond. Is there anything that you love more than God? Is that what's keeping you from right relationship with God? Can you worship not knowing everything that God is doing? Do you see the significance of the substitute? Do you believe God has provided for Himself that which you could never provide through Christ? The reason why some of us are not in right relationship with God is because we refuse to lay on the altar that which God requires. Because we love it too much. This morning, would you release that to God? Would you lay that on the altar? Would you lift up your eyes? Would you physically turn and look at what's behind you and make it in front of you? Take Jesus Christ as the greatest treasure, the only payment for your sin. Offer that to God. Now I know that God loves me because He did not withhold His own Son. And I want to love Him and serve Him and obey Him and worship Him as my highest treasure. Just tell Him that. Lord, I pray that you would press upon our hearts the epic significance of your love for us. You treasured us so much. You gave your only son. And with him, you will give us all things. God, wherever we're resisting, wherever we're holding back, I pray that you would warm our hearts to see the love that you have for your son, price that you paid for the promise and in fresh new ways we would offer our lives to you as a living sacrifice which is our spiritual worship we pray in Jesus name amen would you